welcome to the Outer Circle Inner Stillness. Reflections and conversations exploring recovery work in spiritual disciplines and where they come together. The Outer Circle comes from a recovery exercise called the Three Circles. The Middle Circle contains the bottom line behaviors, those destructive patterns you are working to avoid. The Second Circle contains those behaviors, patterns, places, and relationships that, while not inherently bad, for you are an integral part of the spiral towards the Middle Circle. The outer circle contains the vision of your best and fullest self that you are seeking to live. Turning towards this full self is turning away from your middle circle. The outer circle explores daily practices that promote sobriety, presence, balance, connection, thriving, purpose, healing, and resilience. Inner stillness is a concept from Orthodox Christian spiritual thought that refers to the deepest part of a person's soul, the place where God lives and speaks. In pursuing the outer circle and the inner stillness, I believe we can find all that we need. Welcome to the outer circle and the inner stillness, conversations and reflections on recovery work and spiritual growth and the disciplines that sometimes overlap between the two and all that we can say about the inner life and how the inner life and the outer life interact, because they do. I'm delighted to have a guest today and to introduce you all to him or him all to you. Greg Webb, thank you for hanging out with me for an afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So could you say a little bit about what's your corner of the world? Sure. What do you do? Who are you? Yeah. My name is Greg. Uh, I live in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I am a first-generation cradle Orthodox, I guess. So my parents converted from a Reformed Protestant background right before I came along. I am very much an Orthodox Christian mutt. I started a process of coming out as gay, both to myself and to friends and family, starting in college. Um, And that was a big part of my story. Um, I have occasionally contributed to the Spiritual French Log. I have spoken at the Revoice Conference a few times. I work full-time in financial technology, but I do have a master's degree in counseling uh, from Reform Seminary in St. Louis. Um, that's a whole story in and of itself. Yeah, but mostly from my day job, I, I handle angry people about financial matters. Uh, I attend an OCA parish in Chicago. I sing tenor in the choir. And yeah, I'm kind of always in and around interesting conversations around sexuality. Uh, I identify myself as like a celibate gay man. So the way I've kind of navigated the intersection of my faith and my sexuality has been to pursue celibacy uh, in the midst of the church's teachings on sexuality. And so that has been both a difficult struggle at times, but has also introduced me to some really incredible uh, community I helped oversee a Facebook group of like 700 uh, similar-minded individuals. And yeah, that's very much like my heart, my community. I also like to say I do life very much in the tension. And so I have a whole lot of close relationships and friendships who are ideologically in disagreement with me and myself. Um, And so it can be very fruitful at times. It can also be sometimes kind of exhausting to kind of exist in that tension. But here we are. So yeah, happy to be here today and uh, have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And I want to highlight, I think, the value of being in the tension and of being in the presence of people who are different than you. I I would agree. I I tend to find myself in those circles as well. And 
long-term tend to find them as more rewarding and more interesting and definitely, definitely beneficial. I mean, definitely for me, it's absolutely, yeah, I kind of have to work a little harder for those relationships. And I think something about that, I know I would assume that that makes me a little bit better at relationships because I have to work for some of them. Like if it was just around people that saw things my way all of the time, I might not have to really think about what I think uh, or work or think about how I relate to people. But, you know, rubbing shoulders yeah. with pe- people who see things differently, you, you kind of have to think about things a little bit more. No, I'd absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I think I've also lived a lot of my life in kind of an ecumenical kind of crossroad. Uh, growing up as an Eastern Orthodox kid, but like very involved in a Boy Scout troop with a bunch of Protestants and Catholics. And then I was involved in the Evangelical Campus Ministry for four years in undergrad and then went to a Reformed Presbyterian seminary for a master's degree. And so I, yeah, so I've, I've lived my life in a lot of theological tension in a lot of different directions, as well as across kind of like the spectrum when it comes to uh, sexuality and sexual experience and relationships and kind of all that jazz. So I don't know. It, it, it has its perks and it has its downsides, but I would say for the most part, I, I have benefited from the experiences that I've had. Cool, Leo. So then today our, our conversation is around this question of healthy sexuality. What is healthy sexuality or maybe a comparable term? What is sexual sobriety? What does that look like? And, uh, and I'll ask you more about like where where you're coming at that from. And so for me, from my uh, my inroad to the conversation is more of a clinical one at first. So, uh, so I'm a counselor and I do mostly addictions counseling and mostly around sexual behaviors. So uh, compulsive sexual behavior, commonly known as you know, sex addiction, porn addiction, which entails everything from problematic pornography use to acting out with people to infidelity and the betrayal and the trauma and all of that that go with that. And then I'm also coming at that as, as an Orthodox counselor, uh, been Orthodox for, I guess it was four years as Pasca. So that was a nice. uh, fun, fun little milestone. Congratulations. Thank you. It was really great. My, my world of sex sexuality is one where words like abstinence and celibacy definitely get thrown out or thrown around as standards or as ideals and expectations. And they are definitely laden with controversy. And so that's part of what we're here to explore a little bit is what does, what, what is healthy sexuality both for a person in a relationship and for a single person for you, Greg, what's your inroad to this conversation? Yeah, I think so for largely, largely speaking, I'm approaching things as somebody who's grown up in the Eastern Orthodox Church, who would personally generally affirm the like, quote unquote, traditional sexual ethic. And also as a celibate or single gay man, um, trying to navigate what that looks like, in light of kind of the church's teachings on pretty much strict uh, abstinence, celibacy uh, for life. And so from my own experience, like I have been in around this conversation on sexuality for a long time, it tends to be often in a negative context in the sense of when so much of kind of like the conversation around theology and, and particularly homosexuality is going to be focused on what you're not supposed to do uh, as an Eastern Orthodox Christian or as a, a person as far as like pursuing gay romantic relationships and experiences with people of the same gender and things like that. like. 
I think I have often struggled to try to figure out what a positive vision of sexuality looks like in the midst of that, kind of like keeping the parameters and the frameworks that the church gives us uh, and also struggling to uh, know them to be good for myself, but in light of a lot of the conversation that often kind of can be fairly negative oriented um, in the sense of like even identifying myself as a celibate gay Christian part of that identity is almost in opposition to like relationships and like sexual relationships and romantic relationships. And so kind of all that that entails. So for me, for myself, like I definitely have had mixed experiences um, as far as just like figuring out and learning how to connect and relate to myself um, as a Christian, struggling to pursue faithfulness in light of the church's teachings and my own personal convictions, but also at the same time, navigating what that looks like practically uh, for me. And especially, I would say, within the context of a lot of a lot of stories of failure, um, I would say a lot of the environments that I exist in, I have a lot of friends who are on similar paths as myself pursuing celibacy and chastity in light of their Christian convictions. And then for various reasons over the years, those convictions have changed. And so walking with those friends as they begin to expand more of their sexual experiences and what kind of their boundaries look like and how, yeah, and struggling at times to figure out how I kind of maintain my own kind of stance and kind of keep trudging along in the midst of a lot of that. Thanks for sharing. There's, there's a whole lot there. Um, yeah. One, one, one third I'll, I'll pull out of there though is, is again, so within traditional, so then like conservative Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, especially mm-hmm. it's, it's again, one of those uh, environments where when talking around sexual behavior, uh, words like abstinent celibacy gets, get put out a lot as, Hey, here's, here's a, here's a standard. I mean, not just yeah. an ideal, but, but a bit of standard and an expectation. And, uh, and then it, it does complicate even more so when you factor in sexual orientation as, another layer of don't of don't do and i I would agree too i i have often when i when i've participated in the conversations around sexuality sexual orientation they do tend to focus on what not to do Mm -hmm. i mean especially in the church some some in the clinical world also there's a little in, in that sector there in that sphere there's a little bit more room for some exploration depending on who you're talking to though so sure sure i wonder when we're talking about abstinence mm-hmm. as maybe just like a starting point, what do we mean by that? <laughs> yeah. I, one of the conversations, uh, this on base that I exist in sometimes, um, is a very diverse group of individuals. And I joke oftentimes that there's three things that kind of like, you, well, two things that unite the group. Uh, one, we're all, uh, trying to love Jesus. And the second one is that we're all trying to avoid having gay sex. And I've always jokingly kind of framed it in that way, because I think oftentimes like celibacy and abstinence is very much a, an ongoing pursuit. I don't necessarily know. I don't, I think it can be easy to always assume or take for granted that like celibacy, like abstinence and celibacy is the goal. Like in the sense of like, it's I and myself and part of a group of people who are all trying to adhere to what we understand the church's church says about 
our sexuality and about particularly for us, like sexual expression and acting out and like having engaging in sex, whether that be sex with another person or sex with yourself, uh, pornography, things like that, all of that. And so there's kind of the aspirational sense of pursuing celibacy and, and having that very much as the goal, while also acknowledging that like in a lot of ways, a lot of us don't always meet up to that standard. And so what does grace and forgiveness look like in the midst of kind of this continued pursuit? And so a lot of times the community can look like encouraging one another in that struggle. It doesn't typically always look like kind of accountability <laughs> systems or things like that. Um, I've been in groups over the years where that was a much bigger component of the conversation. Uh, even as a support group, particularly for sexual minorities, there's still like a pretty high focus on like weekly like check-ins and accountability. And I think it does kind of in the conversation around like being gay and Christian within a conservative context, there's a lot of variation where people are coming from with that. We have a lot of people who have extensive sexual experience kind of before they had their like conversion moment or whatever you want to call it. I have a dear friend who has significant experience doing sex work before he kind of had his Christianity conversion experience. And so we also have a lot of people similar to myself who have virtually no experience or history with engaging with other people. And so within that kind of spectrum, you then also have married folks or people who are in committed celibate partnerships. And so in each of those contexts, it can look different, where if you are in what they might call a mixed orientation marriage, like oftentimes the biggest kind of threat to that or the biggest part of that conversation is, is infidelity. And so I've been in support groups, I've helped lead support groups where the majority of the, the men who are in those groups have experiences with infidelity and what that looks like. And so for them, the stakes are extremely high. And so for them, having those conversations, getting out of kind of their silence is a huge part of their, in a sense, recovery process in a way that doesn't maybe look the same uh, for somebody like myself, who is single, who's always been single, who has never deeply betrayed the trust uh, of somebody that I've committed my life to in that same way. And so, yeah, I, I think it can look very different, but I think on the whole, the, the end goal is out of Christian conviction, pursuing abstinence and pursuing chastity and celibacy. And so for me, that means intentionally not pursuing a gay relationship. And so does that always mean that everybody always lives perfectly up to that intention? No. Uh, but I do think there's that aspect of metanoia of like continuing to kind of like say, no, this is like what I do think is good. I am pursuing something that is good. It is hard. But like I keep picking myself back up again and, and coming back. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's a lot and a little scattered. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. Yeah, it's it's indicative of, I think, of where you and me discovered ourselves in this as both both ourselves still being in process sure. over this and still figuring Absolutely. things out. And, you know, I'm, you know, I, I would identify, you know, as, you know, some version of queer, some version of being in addiction or in recovery from my own acting out behaviors also. And so on um, also, and also in a married scenario. And yeah. so, you know, what I, what I want to highlight here is that it's a lot of work. It's a lot mm -hmm. of work. Our, our, sex, our sexual desires, sexual drives are very strong. I think that as I'm hearing you talk, one of the questions that comes up around like this idea of abstinence, and it's an idea that comes up 
in my in my counseling work also. I run some men's groups that look a little bit more like the accountability groups. They're technically process groups, but there's a little bit of that accountability component sure. as there are as there are men who are working very hard to master their desires, master their behaviors. Mm-hmm. One guy's working to not have any more affairs. Someone's also is working to not look at porn. Someone's saying, I don't actually want to quit porn, but I want to look at less porn. And like, mm-hmm. okay, cool. But all of that together is it's it's this community that's saying we don't want to just have whatever sexual experience we want anytime we want it. Sure. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts, Greg. Like, why why would anyone do that? <laughs> uh, like, yeah. given it's a lot of work to work against yourself in this way. Yeah, no, I I feel like there's kind of two answers that definitely overlap, but it, depending on where you're coming from in the conversation, will have kind of a different emphasis. And so, of course, there's like the Jesus answer, um, which is, a very strong, very valid answer for a lot of people in that they recognize that the historical Christian tradition is typically not one of X of desire in almost any capacity. And so there is a really strong kind of biblical foundation within the Christian tradition against fornication, against porneia, against kind of any time, especially within like the fathers and the mothers of the church, anytime you have uh, a persistent desire or urge that kind of has mastery over yourself, uh, that's seen as something that, that's bad, that needs to come into check, even if it's a, a good desire in excess or like the passions. And so I think from within looking at things from like a Christian perspective, there's the sense of that, like growing in relationship with Christ, growing like him does look like gaining mastery and some degree of control over the self-will over the desire to unite yourself to Christ and and unify your will with his. And part of that looks like shunning that which separates you from God and that which distorts his image, the images of his children, his image bearers. And so because of that, like pursuing celibacy, pursuing chastity, pursuing avoiding masturbation and or pornography or illicit affairs or really sex outside of any the only main hallowed context, which would be marriage, is seen as something that does kind of detract from both the image of God within yourself as well as your ability to connect and relate to God. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's like that's the the Christian answer. And I do think also there is can a I, case to yeah. Yeah. Okay, can I can I pause on there though? Sure. Uh which thank thank you. Which and I'm <laughs> Familiar with that very, very, very proper, very Christian answer also. Of course. In there, though, even even in how you're talking about it, though, I, I kind of get the sense that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily that sex is a problem. It's not that sex is evil. It's more unrestrained, unmastered desire yeah, that would I, come between us. Yes. And I, I think, though... I think the way it has often been understood is typically for a single person that does mean complete sexual sobriety. And, and, and so I think in the early church and again, the fathers and mothers of the church, you can go back and forth between like whether sexual expressions of marital intimacy were always a like good thing for the sake of pleasure itself and for the unity of the couple versus how much is simply focused on procreation. And so I don't, I've heard both perspectives strongly within the Orthodox tradition. I would say generally the Orthodox haven't been, they're not quite as 
Catholic in the approach in the sense of like, there isn't as much of a focus on like natural family planning and the conversation around contraception kind of exists within the Orthodox church with more variation that there isn't like the official, this is the understanding of the church and condoms are bad in all cases, always period. And so I do think like, but yeah, I would say within the, yeah. And I would say generally it's not, I think this is where it's hard is it's hard to speak kind of categorically about what exactly is an Orthodox view of sexuality, especially when so much comes from the monastic tradition where complete, like lifelong virginity was the norm and the gold standard. Um, and so many of the saints of the church, that has been their experience. Like that is one of the things that gets added to kind of like their list of accolades um, is their virginity or their sexual purity. And so I do think there's that tension of like, how do we find like a good place and affirming place for sex and desire and experience, but also at the same time within the context of like, sex is kind of this big thing that can kind of like run amok pretty easily if not kind of kept in check and so i do think there's like a strong caution that existed within the church but i can see that and it and it would and just thinking about like desire in general again from a from a more clinical context working through addictions i mean there's a lot of ways we could understand what addiction is Desire could be one of them. It's a fair one. Yeah. And looking at someone who, you know, drinks to excess, who eats to excess, who mm-hmm. has sexual encounters to excess. And excess is a little bit of a subjective term. You know, we measure by sure. problems and unmanageability. But we all but we also observe that, you know, even apart from any moral framework, you know, so the the actions that people take to meet a desire can often damage relationships and damage their life. And absolutely preclude any sort of real presence or real intimacy. And so the, 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 the move to say, I'm going to, you know, in some cases have less sex or look at less porn or drink less or just consume less. One of the, uh, clinically speaking, one of the goals often is to be more present within oneself, which then results in being able to be more present with others, which yeah. tends to, well, it tends to be a very scary thing, but sometimes people discover, hey, that's actually the kind of life that I want to live is being very present, very connected. And I can't yeah. do that while I'm obsessively pursuing satiation of whichever desire. Yeah. I know like in, in some of my own work, in my own therapy, a lot of the conversation has been about like loneliness. What do you do when you're alone? And all the things that you do to fill kind of like the silence. And so whatever mm-hmm. behavior that is is that always a positive thing? And there's, it's good to sometimes like kick back and relax and enjoy a drink with a group of friends. But it's another thing if that becomes like part of just the pattern. If like you're never comfortable without something to distract you or that, that, that high to kind of get you through that situation. And I think even from like a, yeah, like looking at things from like a secular perspective, there's like a lot of conversations. I think typically more around like, pornography and kind of the impact of just as the industry and that it's like not like objectively from like evaluation of like ethical views like it's not a great thing to in a sense financially support i do see that conversation can kind of shift a bit depending on who you talk to there's also like a sense even within kind of like a secular context of like okay like there are lines and there does seem to be like things can go bad <laughs> in less than desirable ways. I think 
Um, there's a really incredible movie that I can't actually suggest anybody watch called Shame with Michael Fassbender. And it's a secular depiction of sex addiction and all the ways in which like it takes a toll on his individual life and all the ways it's blocked him from being present with those who he cares about most deeply. And it's really gripping and heartbreaking and it's entirely without kind of a Christian context. It is just, this is what kind of like unfettered addiction can do. And so even from like a non-Christian standpoint, I do think there's at least some language in the conversation to say like, Hey, like, okay, like, was this necessarily like a good thing? Like casual romantic connections might be one thing. Sex on a third date, debatable. First date, maybe, but strictly anonymous sexual encounters in public spaces, like maybe not a great part of like a pattern. And if that's where you find yourself repeatedly compelled, maybe something to think about and examine. But yeah. I don't know. That's a tangent. It's a tangent. It's definitely a worthwhile one though. And, you know, I mean, and again, so, so to me, coming from from the more clinical world, it's not really a place to pronounce a judgment on this or that type of sexual sure. behavior over another. So we don't. But we but yeah, we look at patterns. We look at the fruit, and we say, yeah, okay. So you know, Michael Fassbender's characters, you know, having strictly anonymous, you know, risky sexual behavior, sexual encounters. Although I've heard someone propose that all sexual encounters are risky, which there's a yes. point there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you could look and say. I mean, in, in my context, we're looking at, well, what's what's the functionality of that? Like, what's the emotional, psychological, adaptive value to that kind of sex versus, you know, committed monogamous, intimate sex? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we would tend to look at that and say, okay, so there's there's a functionality there, probably an extreme one, maybe coming out of pain somewhere. I mean, maybe that's just like what brings them joy and connectedness and peace and hope and harmony. Maybe. <laughs> I guess probably not, but... You know, but but we would look at it that way and say, we oh yeah, we'd look at the fruit of it. I want to circle a little bit because when I asked this question of like, uh, why you know why on earth would anyone not have sex whenever they want? Uh, you know, you talked about having the Jesus answer and having like uh, another answer. What's your other answer? No, I think the the other answer I was getting at is more kind of the secular context that I was talking about, where it is kind of like. I mean, there's like secular organizations that exist kind of like against kind of the commercial pornography industry. There are secular or like Reddit has whole like no fap conversations and zones where like people from not from a perspective or like they associate like lack like ma- frequency of masturbation with a decrease in like overall like drive and libido. And so like it's a group that encourages one another to like not masturbate as much in the sense of like being stronger men i don't know that's debatable whether or not that's a positive reason but that's like there's other reasons or and so yeah and so i think generally the way i was setting it up is there's the the kind of like the christian answer which there's overlap like i was thinking as you were just talking now like um like the way paul talks about like there's an acknowledgement within scripture that like sex is a big powerful relational thing and that like through a sexual act with two people there is a sense of like unity that comes about via that and like you're uniting yourself to another that one fleshness and so there does become that conversation of like what is it that you are you if sex at its ideal is relational is connected it helps foster and build on that 
when it occurs outside of relationship commitment is like that that's still a powerful thing that you're in a kind of sense like cutting off from kind of it's natural even like biological just chemical the way like your brain connects and and establishes itself kind of mm-hmm. in those moments yeah so 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 that's where i think we're in some familiar territory conversational territory around why people would say moderation is good abstinence is good mm-hmm. keeping your keeping your virginity is good what i'd love to touch on a little bit though is so what goes wrong or you know these people who are super dedicated you know what what is what is what are the problems with abstinence as a standard uh and how it, how are some ways that you've seen people maybe not go about this in the healthiest way i mean i i feel like the obvious one is, is shame and but like i think as a Christian, from a Christian perspective, shame can be a tricky thing because I think there is kind of like this understanding of there can be good shame in the sense of like shame is a positive, natural response when like certain things are happening. But I think generally that sense of like anything that kind of sets up like I am unlovable, I am unworthy, I, which often has been kind of like, especially the American modern kind of evangelical approach has been one of like intense purity culture and this notion of like, if you have crossed this line, you're somehow like tarnished the whole like dirty Kleenex or Oreo or whatever else metaphor somebody used at some point in kind of like a Christian sex conversation. There's that sense of like you're damaged goods. And I think with that comes intense shame. And so, and I think that is not helpful. And I think his story has kind of proven that for the most part, it didn't actually keep people from not engaging sexually. It just made them feel worse about it and struggle to reconcile what they had done with who God was. And so in some cases at the most extreme, it was easier to just kind of like remove the God from the conversation. I think it can like, I think in kind of like some of my reflections before our talk, was just thinking about like so often you we have all the fruits of the spirit and there's lots of them (laughs) and there are a lot of positive things and so often it feels like because sex is rightfully seen as like a big important powerful thing oftentimes self-control ends up becoming like the end-all be-all of the list of fruits of the spirit and so what other aspects of spiritual development or sanctification are neglected in the pursuit of 100% committed fidelity, so like abstinence. And so, and I think, yeah. And so from my experience, I think a lot of times because the conversation can be so focused on that aspect of self-control, even if you have X number of days of like sobriety or abstinence or whatever, that doesn't always necessarily mean like you've cultivated anything else in your life other than an absent one particular behavior. Yeah. This comes up in the in the recovery world a lot where somebody will, you know, boast of, you know, 12, 15, 20 years you know, obstinate from alcohol and like all of the mm-hmm. hard drugs, but they're like maybe still smoking weed or still looking at porn or they're just like a really yep. angry person or more and more and more nebulously. They're just this, this really rigid, like kind of extreme person mm-hmm. who can't quite get beyond like black and white thinking and also still isn't really in touch with emotions and is just like... I know we we call it acting in when you're investing all of your energy into not doing specific sure. behaviors. 
which would be different than like you're saying, like cultivating like the rest of the fruits of the spirit. Self-control is great, but what about, you know, love, joy, peace, and patience? You know, are you transforming into a kinder, more present person or (laughs) are just, and it, it can be easy sometimes if you're so focused on like kind of avoiding your occasions of sin and what you're not like exposing yourself to that any person who kind of like disrupts that or any kind of interjection of beauty or sexuality that might be acceptable in other contexts that you suddenly that person's like somehow trying to like harm you and that you lose sight of like who they are and their beauty and their self. Um, And so, I mean, it's like this super common kind of like morality conversation, the kind of whole like Mike Pence, like I won't eat by myself with like another woman, things like that. We're like, there's one thing to be said, like, if you're in a situation where for you, if you had like a single meal with another single woman, and that would probably immediately lead to adultery and infidelity, yeah, probably should be avoided. But if like your entire mantra of how you relate to stop the sexual temptress, in a sense, is boiled down to that, mm. then that has like kind of removed their personhood. And mm. you end up with the whole notion of like, well, somebody was just asking for it because they were re- wearing revealing clothing or something like that. It's like, mm. no, that it's not about them. It's about yeah. you in that and that sense of, yeah, having yeah. everything so locked down. Yeah. And something like that idea, and I had heard like, you know, Billy Graham had a similar practice too, which again, for someone in his position makes sense because, yeah. you know, <laughs> you'd have to, but, even, but something like that though, I mean, that's, that's a standard and it's, it's not a bad standard by any means. but it's not necessary for everyone or Mm -hmm. i would say it's i wouldn't say we should like just categorically adopt that as like that's what everybody should do all of the time always because people have different relationship relationships with each other different vulnerabilities and like like for me in my case like uh you know like a like a meeting with like another single woman, like wouldn't really be a big temptation. Like, you know, a comparable, like single, single dude, like that'd be a different, different struggle or, yeah. you know, or like me at a table with like a bunch of pastry. There's, there's vulnerability there too, of a different sort. So I think when I'm thinking about like the, the, the abstinence culture, the purity culture, there's, I mean, some of the challenges I see there are that it is very just like black and white, very, very simplistic. It just this blanket standard applies to everybody kind of regardless. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with like abstinence and purity culture is that it's it's hard to succeed long term. And I don't think we're really good at feeling well. No, I think I think especially publicly, at least looking largely in the evangelical world, like there's many recent examples of kind of spectacularly failing poorly in the sense of, of like, because you do set it up where it becomes taboo because everything is so black and white that like any amount of failure would be so detrimental that even if it has happened, it can't be talked about. And I think that creates situations that are like rife for abuse is that like, okay, it would be better. Like, yes, the right thing would be for me to share this and confess this and like bring in accountability if this happened. But because if I do that, I might lose my status or my position or my teaching ability Suddenly, like, it doesn't mean you ha- aren't doing those things. It just means you're not engaged, like, you're not having a conversation about it. I think, like, Ravi Zacharias was, like, a super significant, very public evangelical Christian figure who was, like, one of the top apologists and, like, had a huge ministry that impacted millions. 
and was quietly actively like abusing his employees for sexual favors. And that deeply destroys the ministry that he's built. And so like, would it, would it have been better that 20 years ago he had been like, I have struggled with fidelity in my relationship with my wife sometimes. And that is something we've been navigating and we have accountability for it. That might have looked really differently. And so I do think like there is, I don't know, maybe this is cynical and jaded from my experience, but I do think so often, yeah, there has to be much more room for like failing gracefully and what like restoration and really looks like that. That isn't because I think it's often naive to assume that because somebody says something's not an issue that it's not an issue. And so, but so to like to create a context of accountability, but also a context of like safe spaces where like it is legitimately out of concern for somebody with where they're at and, and not just the the concern of like the scandal that might happen mm-hmm. if like somebody found out. I'd love to see that develop in these high profile places also where there's more of an assumption of struggle. Like mm-hmm. if we could, if we could, if we could look at like every pastor and priest and assume that they're struggling with something mm-hmm. and just let that be kind of a normal thing, not to let them off the hook, of course, but just to recognize, mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, you know, pastor so-and-so father, so-and-so they struggle with this or that or that. And like, okay, cool. Are they going to confession? Are they going to counseling? Yes. Great. Uh, mm-hmm. Now we can pray for them. But I mean, with like the Ravi Zacharias example, you said it too. Yeah, that would have been great if, you know, him and the hundreds of others like like him could have come forward in a safe way to say, hey, I have a struggle. Don't fire me from this thing that I've invested my life in. Like, let me get help. Help me get help so that I can continue in the work that I'm probably really good at. Yeah. Like, that doesn't mean you're not good at the teaching you're doing or the public speaking or that there isn't truth there. But if your image becomes so connected to it, I don't know. I think I think sometimes you can run into also the opposite, but not really the opposite, where you do have cases where like somebody part of their testimony is the once was lost, now and found. And so they can be really opiate about their historical messiness. And I feel like particularly in kind of again, the evangelical American context of kind of the whole ex gay movement of this desire to like be straight that so much pressure was placed on these public figures that that was part of their story. And in almost every case, a decade later, none of that was true. But for a season, they might have even believed it themselves, that they were they were cured. And so yeah. I, I think, yeah, so it, it, there is always that tension of how do you both not, how do you, I don't know, maybe this is full circle a little bit, but there's so much of the tension of like, how do you ho- hold the ideal and the good as a good thing and as a standard that exists for a reason and acknowledges that sex is powerful and can be damaging if used incorrectly and in the wrong context. And how do you uphold kind of that calling towards aesthetical effort while also the, on the other hand, not creating a, an environment of, of shame of kind of that black and white thinking of like either you're successful or you're complete and utter miserable failure and there's nothing in between. Yeah. And so I think, the secular modern kind of context has tended to lean towards the, like, we'll throw the standard away entirely. Like if nobody's living up to it, then what's the point of having it? And I don't think that's necessarily proven to be the best idea either. And so how do we then live in the context of like acknowledging failure, but also not having like throughout the entire idea or the entire struggle in the first place? Yeah. 
and that I feel like is like the the really central question here is like within within both our different worlds, like the the church world, the side A side B world, the the counseling world. This idea of like how strict should I be and how strict could I be? And like you were mentioning, I mean, we in the Orthodox tradition, I mean, we have people like the Holy Theotokos, Saint Mary of Egypt, Saint Anthony the Great, you know, Saint Moses the Black, the you know, the Virgin Martyrs, who mm-hmm. that was a like the complete sexual renunciation was a huge part of their salvation process. And yep. and it, it could be easy to say, well, they did it. Why can't I? I mean, especially if, especially single people might sure. be particularly vulnerable to that too. Again, like, like you're saying, it's it's a difficult standard to meet. That doesn't mean we should throw the standard at all standard out altogether, because the problem may not be the stand the standard. And maybe maybe more, but maybe more emphasis should be put on the experience of struggle rather than like the end goal itself. Like, what does it do for me to be gently pushing myself more and more um, if I'm I, I, th- I think there's some some benefit to having to think about it or gradually cultivating more mindfulness, more self-control over time. Uh, and again, that I mean, we're talking about sex here, but the thing you struggle against could just as easily be food or TV mm-hmm. or too much work or anger or something else. I think though the other the other really main component is reason or the the reason for it. Uh, and this is a conversation I I'm able to start in my clinical context. I'm able to you know, when guys are kind of chafing under the pressures of like, I can't look at porn, I can't have affairs, I like, shouldn't be masturbating. To just be focused on that kind of creates this weird dynamic, building your life around a void. And so I'm, I'm, off, I'm often like pushing them to think, okay, so what's the benefit for you? What's the reason? Why would you push yourself this way? And if you like the, there are answers, there are better answers for that, like within a faith tradition, within orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. One of the things I noticed about like these super aesthetics is they they had a really clear sense of how they were using their their sexual struggle for spiritual gain. And not everybody has that, or not everybody has developed that yet. They could, yeah. but probably not, not all at once. But, but I feel like that that is often a missing component. Uh, I see people who are just like, hey, I should not have sex, or I should not drink, or I should like just be super strict with myself just for the sake of being super strict with myself. Sure. And then it gets really frustrating or they get really prideful and maybe end up relapsing anyway. Different than somebody who's like, I'm humbly and gently pushing myself in this way. Not perfectly, but like, I kind of know what the end goal is and I'm just going to inch my way there for the rest of my life. But I don't know. What's, yeah. what's your thought there? No, yeah, I think I would definitely agree with that. Um, I think I was thinking, like, I think there's all the... I guess saints, fathers, and mothers of the church who don't have virginity as part of their title, and how many of their stories are unknown, and how many of their experiences, or how many like, like the amount of kind of pretty terrible people who are mostly redeemed through a single act of like repentance and martyrdom, and so like how many of that like that doesn't necessarily mean they immediately had arrived in their spiritual journey up until that point and had like figured it all out but in the right moment, they made the right decision. And so how much of kind of our spiritual life and struggle is that? Like, I guess, I don't know, a long sequence of small right decisions. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, you, I mean, I mean, that's making me think of like a contrast of someone like, I mean, forgive me if I'm getting the stories wrong. So I, th- I think someone like, say, like the St. John of Shanghai, St. John Maximovich, mm-hmm. who I believe was Orthodox his whole life. I think, 
compared to someone like St. Dismas, the thief on the cross, who like sure. was basically like a Christian for like a couple hours. <laughs> and that, that yeah. was all he had. And they both wove their own garments of salvation with the materials that they had. And maybe yeah. St. John just had like a whole lot more. Yeah. And you also, yeah. And then like how many, yeah. How many <laughs> kings and soldiers and whatnot kind of like got sainted, not for their own personal piety or chastity, but because they built a whole bunch of churches or like they enabled the right people to do the right things. I don't yeah. Know. But yeah, that's a whole. Right. <laughs> we could tangent on the saints uh, yeah. and what they did for sure. I think so. And Maybe bringing out a point though. So, so when we talk about like what is what is healthy sexuality, I mean, we were, we were kind of talking around and against this idea of like like the abstinence standard, which we didn't get to tangent on the difference between abstinence and celibacy. I'd love to come back to that one sometime. But what I'm what I'm gleaning from this is that it really has to be kind of an individualized rubric. I mean, certainly and certainly in, certainly in in the clinical world. Uh, there, I mean, there's, it's not quite choose your own adventure. There's some patterns and there's just like some commonly understood, like this tends to be good for most people sorts of things. Like, you know, it's not good to go have like anonymous random hookups, uh, just generally not good, you know, affairs and keeping secrets from your partner, always bad, you know, is porn ever okay? Is mindful masturbation ever okay? Can a really thoughtful, mindful, like one night stand, ever be okay for certain people and sure depending on a lot of factors yeah you know it gets different within the the faith context but it feels like there's still or maybe there ought to be more room for like hey sure we have the standard it's a fine standard and maybe everybody should be oriented around that standard but just recognizing not everybody's there yet and it might take some people a long time to get to where that's kind of like a non-damaging standard to try to reach for you know some people they try to reach for that abstinence standard now it's just gonna like drive them to despair other people it's like more attainable uh just because of a lot of different factors yeah like there's a sense of like learning to not just confess the behavior of using pornography but also sometimes to confess the ambivalence towards that and that that is itself its own kind of like can of worms and that doesn't mean you have like fully arrived in a given place. Um, I do think, uh, yeah, part of me goes back to kind of like the general orthodox ethos of like, of kind of like athletic endeavors as it applied to kind of like aesthetic practice and the faith in the sense of like what there's like tends to be kind of a general framework that generally gets star runners to become star runners. And that probably doesn't look like hardcore eating really poorly all the time and heavy drinking, but there probably is going to be a few people out there who can still hit those like goals while also still kind of not having the world's most perfect diet and everything else. And so, but does that, so I think you can say like from the church's perspective, like there are things that are are seen as like good and they're good pursuits. And there's definitely seen things that are like historically spiritually proven to be bad. And, and hurtful towards relationship with God. I mean, like in theory and like the, like come to that kind of where you're at within like the context of like a spiritual father relationship or mother or some kind of like guidance. 
Um, I know I myself always tend to lean towards the like fierce independent perspective, <laughs> which is not good. Um, it's just kind of often been my practice. And so how to use like my generally Christian therapist, who's not explicitly Orthodox to kind of like work out some of that. And then my priest kind of leaves a lot of that, like at my counselor's discretion to some extent. So I don't know. So there's goals and there's good things that are good to be pursued because they are inherently good. And there are definitely things that are bad and destructive, but how exactly you work out the balance of that is not always super blind. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking of something that one of, one of my priests says, uh, uh, you, know, every, you know, every time I go up to confession with them and I'm like, oh, I yelled at my kids, I yelled at my wife, I masturbated, this, 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 that. And, and it's like, and he's like, hmm, we do what we can. I'm like, thanks, Father John. <laughs> we, you know, we do what we can, which, I mean, I, I love that in that it, it acknowledges that there, you know, we we do our best and should always do our best. And that's going to look different um, for different people at different times. And the responsibility element of that, though, is is this can't be just like a, a passive you, you set your set it to automated and, and go like it's uh you know this process of like sexual sobriety healthy sexuality spiritual growth it's one that you have to like pay attention to every day and you have to check in every day every week every month and you have to give it a lot of attention to fit, to learn what that balance is and maintain it mm-hmm. so i don't i guess it it definitely yeah. demands mindfulness yeah and also to avoid the temptation to also give in to despair, kind of on the other side of things. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a delicate balance, but I think it is hopefully worthwhile and ultimately fruitful. I think so. I mean, you know, balance it. <laughs> I'm making a slackline reference. If I balance a whole bunch, I have a really nice looking core. So, <laughs> anyway, yeah. I think we're, we're going to have to wrap for today. Hopefully I might uh, invite you back for a sequel, but yeah. in the meantime, if the listener wanted to reach out to you for further conversation, et cetera, where can you be found on the webs in the world? Uh, I typically exist on Twitter at Jerry G G W E B B just at Greg Webb. Um, my website is elaysonblog.org, E-L-E-I-S-O-N-B-L-O-G.org. And there's, I think, a contact form there as well. Cool. I'll have those links in the notes, like good podcasters should. <laughs> but, <laughs> Sounds good. Cool. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for cool. being here. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. We'll, we'll do it again soon. Sounds good. Thank you for joining me in today's conversation. My name is Reese Basimio. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian and a clinical counselor with specialties in substance use, compulsive behaviors, sexuality, and trauma. You can reach me through newpatterncounseling.com. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. The music is by Titus Lockard. Please like, rate, review, and share this podcast from all your favorite platforms. Please also consider showing your support of this work through contributing dollars through the podcast page at patreon.com slash outer circle. Thank you and see you next time. Thank you.